hello and welcome to the show. If you cover old Hollywood, you need to cover Joan Crawford. She is one of the most remarkable actresses of that time. She's a truly beautiful woman and a very interesting character. I loved to dig deep into her life story and I'm happy to share that today with you. So without further ado, let's start. Joan Crawford was actually born Lucille Faye Lesseur on March 23rd, sometime between 1904 and 1908. I say sometime because it's not sure when she was born. Most of the time she has put down 1906 as her year of birth, but there are different accounts, so nobody knows for sure. And she had a nickname Billy as a kid, which was later only used by very close friends of her. Her biological dad left family when she was only 10 months old and Crawford's mother managed to get by with her three kids on a very meager sales assistant wage. And apparently Joan Crawford was physically abused and emotionally neglected by her mother. The family was really poor. And in 1909, her mother remarried Henry Casson, who Crawford believed to be her father for the longest time. And as an 11-year-old, Joan Crawford was sexually abused by him for a period of time. When later asked about it, she would later cover over it and gloss over it and say that she let him into it and that he was a very gentle and nice man and not make a big deal of it. And this is one of the heartbreaking aspects of her life that makes some of her actions later on more understandable because her childhood life was full of poverty, hurt, neglect and punishment. And then there was this one man granting her the attention and affection that she so desperately sought for. And this is truly heartbreaking, I think. So Henry Casson was managing the Ramsey Opera House in Lawton, Oklahoma. And this is also where Joan Crawford learned about theater, ballet and vaudeville. And she loved to watch the acts. And this is also when her ambition to become a dancer was born. And as a kid, she took dancing lessons. When her stepfather was accused of embezzlement, the family had to move and they moved to Kansas City. And Crawford was placed at um, St. Agnes Academy, where she remained as a working student after her parents separated. And actually, she worked more than she studied. She later on changed to Rockingham Academy, also as a working student, and again, working more than she studied. She did have some kind of academic motivation. She even enrolled at Stevens College in Columbia, but dropped out soon after because she realized she was not prepared for college because of all the working while studying, her actual level of schooling never surpassed the primary level. She was not fit for college. So she realized that was which is fine. So instead, she started dancing in the courses of traveling dancing companies, and she was spotted by none other than Jacob J. Schubert. Schubert was the head of the Schubert family that basically operated the largest theater empire of the 20th century, including Broadway's Winter Garden. And that was Joan Crawford's start on Broadway at Broadway's Winter Garden. As she was eager to earn more money, she approached, among others, the publicist of Lowe's Theatre, Neil Crunland, who arranged a screen test for her. Interesting fact, Neil Crunland can be credited to invent the art of trailers as a promotional tool for upcoming movies. I didn't know that, but now you know. 
Based on this screening material, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, offered Crawford a contract for $75 a week, which is nowadays roughly $1,300 a week, which ain't bad, to be quite honest. When it comes to the allure of Crawford, why she fascinated the people, film historian Molly Haskell is quoted as saying, she grew up and was formed by the Depression. And that experience permeated the films she made and explains the intensity of her appeal to millions who were living through hard times. So this, I found, was a really interesting quote to find about Crawford. So she started at MGM. What happened? Crawford had her first role in the movie Lady of the Night as a body double for Norma Shearer and afterwards some minor roles. And she was credited as Lucille Lesseur in these early movies. And her potential was recognized by the publicity head of MGM, Pete Smith. But the name Lesseur reminded him of Sewer, and he wanted her name changed. And that decision was made into a PR campaign when Smith placed a contest called Name the Star in the magazine Movie Weekly. And it allowed readers to pick a name for MGM's new star. And actually, the name that won was Joan Arden. But there already was an actress called Joan Arden, so that was not an option. So it was Joan Crawford. And Crawford actually detested the name. But it was chosen and it gave her kind of a security to be tied to this MGM name. There's a quote by Frederica Sagomas, who was a screenwriter at MGM, and she said about Crawford, No one decided to make Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford became a star because Joan Crawford decided to become a star. Which is just so revealing about the character and the qualities that Crawford possessed. She is sometimes described as this actress who clawed her way up the Hollywood ladder and clawed her way up to success, like this really eager and vicious thing that is determined to come out top. So I find this really revealing about her. Crawford wanted to be seen. She wanted to be an actress and probably she wanted to be a star. She wanted to be at the top of the ladder. So as she was trained as a very good dancer, she started to attend all the afternoon and evening dances at the hotels in around Hollywood. And she performed the Charleston and the Black Bottom Stump, which was like the successor of the Charleston. And she won contests and she was seen and she was like the life of the party because she was such a gifted and talented dancer. And she became visible to everyone. People were talking about her. And this strategy worked. MGM cast her in bigger roles and she was named one of 1926's Wampus Baby Stars. And within a few short years, she became the leading lady in many MGM romantic movies. But it was the 1928 movie Our Dancing Daughters that finally catapulted Crawford to stardom. Crawford's character, Diana Matford, is the ultimate flapper and it established Crawford as a new icon of the 1920s style and fashion and femininity. It was rivaling Clara Bow's It Girl status. And Fitzgerald wrote about Crawford, Joan Crawford is doubtless the best example of the flapper, the girl you see in smart nightclubs, gowned to the apex of sophistication, toying iced glasses with a remote, faintly bitter expression. 
dancing deliciously, laughing a great deal with wide, hurt eyes. Young things with a talent for living. And that was what Crawford was perceived to be, both as a person and as an actress. If there's one thing for sure, it's that Joan Crawford worked hard for her success. When the talkies, so the movies with sound, became all the rage, Crawford practiced diction and allocution to get rid of her southwestern dialect and accent, and she took singing lessons with Estelle Liebling, one of the most famous singing teachers in Hollywood back in the 1930s and 40s. Her transition to sound was a successful one, and MGM started to cast her less as a flapper and more in sophisticated roles. And Crawford actually became one of MGM's leading ladies next to Norma Shearer, Greta Garbo and Jean Harlow. And after that, she did Grand Hotel with an all-star cast, including Lionel and John Barrymore and Greta Garbo. It was one of the highest grossing movies of the year 1932, and it received the Academy Award for Best Picture. And Crawford had a streak of successful movies until 1937 and was even proclaimed Queen of the Movies by Live magazine that very year. But after that, her career took a slump. Her movies were not as big hits as they used to be, and MGM also lost money on them. And in 1938, Crawford was one of the actresses called out in the infamous box office poison ad by Harry Brandt. One year later, in 1939, she was able to get the role of Crystal Allen in The Women, which was not the main part. And she started to take risks with some more demanding roles that were cast against her usual type of woman, which was a woman from humble beginnings that had dreams, works hard and, and gets the man of her dreams. But in 1943, her contract with MGN was terminated and Crawford was bought out of the contract for roughly $2 million when adjusted for inflation. And afterwards, Crawford signed a $10 million three-movie deal with Warner Brothers. And her first leading role was Mildred Pierce in 1945. And with the help of Luella Parsons, which I've covered in another episode, Crawford did win the Academy Award for Best Actress. Famously, she accepted that Oscar in bed. <laughs> Apparently, she was bedridden by influenza, but later on she admitted that she had feared that Ingrid Bergman would win, and she thus decided to simply not go. So she accepted the Oscar in bed, like in full makeup and hair and looking very beautifully. And Mildred Pierce, this movie, put her back on the list of successful leading ladies, and she had a string of very successful movies during her time at Warner Brothers. She worked for RKO and then returned to MGM in 1953. She then starred in several movies that had like good critical feedback, but they weren't overly successful. They weren't like star material until 1962. So there were 10 years that nothing major happened in her career as an actress. And she was like eager to have like this big splash on screen again and be that star again. And along came Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It was released in 1962 and it starred Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. And this movie was an immense success, critically and financially. It recouped the costs within like 10 or 11 days and Davis was even nominated for an Academy Award, while Crawford wasn't. There was a sequel planned, but Crawford was replaced by Olivia de Havilland. 
She also had, like, after that movie, some minor movies and was the first professional actor that Steven Spielberg directed in 1969's Night Galley. And she stepped in to replace her daughter in The Secret Storm, which was like a TV sitcom in New York. And that was like, it's a fascinating fact, I think, because that role her daughter Christina was um, doing was like a 20-year-old, but... John Crawford was already over 60 years old. I find it funny that she did the role, but she did it. And she also appeared in numerous TV shows during the 1960s and 70s. So that is like her career. So now let's see about John Crawford's love and family life, which is just as interesting as her career. I already stated that John Crawford was sexually abused as a kid by her stepfather. And this sadly informed some of her love and family life stories. She was married four or five times and had numerous affairs. I say four or five times because allegedly Crawford got married to a saxophone player in 1924. But this marriage was never mentioned by Crawford, nor is there any information or documentation about the annulment or the divorce. So... I just do not count it. The other four, they're official, so we can talk about them. Say so the other four are Douglas Fairbanks Jr., French Tone, Philip Terry, and Alfred Steele. And all of these marriages, coincidentally, lasted only for four years each. So, who were these people that she married and, and what happened during the marriage? So the first marriage was to Douglas Fairbanks Jr. in 1929, when Crawford was... 22 or 24 years old, depending on her birthday. And Douglas Fairbanks Jr. was old Hollywood royalty. His father was Douglas Fairbanks Sr. He was one of the most successful old Hollywood actors. And Mary Pickford was his stepmother. And these two founded United Artists. They were like real Hollywood. And both opposed the marriage. And while Fairbanks Sr. apparently warmed towards Crawford after some time, Pickford never did, and she hardly ever spoke to Crawford. And after four years, those two decided that they are not a match, and they divorced. Apparently, they did have affairs during the marriage. John Crawford's second marriage was to Franchot Tone, and that is a tricky one. Betty Davis accuses Crawford to have seduced and married this New York stage actor just to spite her. Nevertheless, Crawford and Tone tried for kids but miscarried, and apparently the marriage later on got abusive and Crawford filed for divorce. After the divorce, Crawford adopted the child by herself. It was a girl, and she named her Joan. The third marriage was to actor Philip Terry, two years later, and she changed her baby girl's name, Joan, to Christina and adopted another child, a son. That one sadly was reclaimed, or happily, I don't know. He was. He was reclaimed by his birth mother, but they adopted another son and named him Christopher. I don't actually know much about the marriage, apart from that it ended in divorce. And after that marriage, Crawford adopted a pair of twins called Cindy and Kathy through the Tennessee Children's Home Society, which actually was a child trafficking unit. But it was later looked into the case and the adoption of 
Cindy and Kathy was legal and the kids were given to this home when the mother, their birth mother was dying and there was like written proof for it. But, you know, again, some kind of connection, which is like, I find interesting. <laughs> and Crawford's last marriage in 1955 was to Alfred Steele, who was the president of Pepsi-Cola. He made Crawford travel and promote extensively for the company. Steele died of a heart attack after four years of marriage and Crawford was elected to the board of directors to represent the company. And she actually received the Pelly Award in 1963, which is given to the employees with the biggest contribution to the company. And upon reaching the age of 65, she retired from Pepsi-Cola. Her daughter Christina penned a memoir called Mummy Dearest that was published in 1978. It's basically the first tell-all book of Hollywood and it painted Crawford in a very bad light as a physically and emotionally abusive mother and also containing allegations that Crawford might have murdered Steele. Mummy Dearest, this book is very, very controversial because some back up Christina and say that, yes, that is absolutely true and we totally believe her. And others denounce the allegations and side with Crawford, saying that Christina has made it all up and she was living in her own little bubble and world. The truth? I don't know. Because two of her kids, like Christina and Christopher, her first two kids, they both backed accusations. And they were both written out of Crawford's will. And she didn't give a reason, like she said in her will, for reasons that they know of. So it's between Crawford and these two kids. And her other two kids, Cindy and Kathy, claim that there's no truth whatsoever to the allegations. And as Christina has made it up on her own, in her own reality, that's her story and it's not true at all. And these two were gifted some money in the will. But the lion's share of Crawford's estate went to the huge number of charities that she supported, like the USO of New York, the American Cancer Society, the Muscular Dystrophy Association. And she actually was very supportive of those less fortunate and even paid hospital stays for those out of luck and out of money and never mentioned it once anywhere. She didn't want anyone to know that she was paying the bills. She did good and did not talk about it. So I don't know whether or not the book is true. I don't know what is true. I just take it with a grain of salt. I try to be objective. But this kind of streak of her, that she was paying for many people hospital bills, not talking about it and supporting those who are sick, who are dying, who are out of luck, who are out of jobs, without saying a single word about it, that to me is like a really good person. So, apart from her husband's, John Crawford had numerous affairs. And the longest and most intense one was with the king of Hollywood, Clark Gable. Crawford and him, they were paired eight times on the screen. And they started an affair in the early 1930s. And it was so steamy that MGM wanted to break it up. But actually, it did not succeed. The affair spent almost 30 years. Crawford never considered Gable to be marriage material until he wed Carol Lombard, who was the love of his life. But they remained friends because when Lombard died in 1942, Joan Crawford came to Gable's emotional rescue and he spent many nights at her home to drink, to talk, to cry, to sleep. 
So she was there for him. She was a loyal friend. Other affairs included short flings with Spencer Tracy, Jeff Chandler and John Ireland. Outrageous was an affair with Jackie Cooper because Jackie Cooper was an actor and he was merely 17 years old and she was 34. And apparently she seduced him. A little bit of a cougar. <laughs> Kirk Douglas was another one of her many men. And he actually said about the encounter that it was all very clinical, very not emotional and very weird. And Winston Sherman, who directed Crawford in a movie in the 1950s, told that she invited him to a screening of her earlier work in her home. And then she simply took off all her clothes and seduced him. There are many accounts that Crawford used her body and sex and her seductive behavior as a means to get better shots and screen time in movies and to manipulate directors, co-stars and producers in her favor. And as Sherman puts it, in her mind, sex and her body was a way to control the movie or the movies and therefore control her career. And Betty Davis once said about her, Joan Crawford has slept with every male star at MGM except Lassie the dog. So this is really a rude remark by Betty Davis. Speaking of Betty Davis, Joan Crawford had two nemeses in Hollywood. One of them was Betty Davis. The other one was Norma Shearer. Norma Shearer was married to Irving Tolberg, the head of production at MGM, and therefore Norma Shearer got first picks at all the good roles. And one quip that is known about Crawford is, how can I compete with Norma? She sleeps with the boss. And playing Crystal Allen opposite Shearer and the woman was a real delight for Crawford. But apart from this, there was no actual battle, no feud. Quite the opposite when it comes to Betty Davis. This feud lasted well over 30 years. When and how did it start? What did happen? So there's a very interesting timeline. So I tried to condense it, but it's just all so juicy. <laughs> it all began in 1933, when Crawford had been in Hollywood already for a couple of years as an actress and was married to Douglas Fairbanks Jr., thus herself being Hollywood royalty. Betty Davis had managed for the first time to be billed at first position. But... The very time that this first build thing would come out about Betty Davis, Crawford announced that she was about to divorce Fairbanks. And all movie and gossip papers covered this scandal, like the breakup of this poster child marriage. And no one gave Davis a second thought and the movie flopped. That was like when Davis got a bit, like, unhappy with Crawford. And apparently Davis had been a little bit jealous of Crawford's affair with Gable, who Davis had a crush on. But the battle really took off when Davis was paired with a French tone for the movie Dangerous, because Davis fell for him hard. But Crawford seduced the actor and married him. And some say she did that just to spite Davis. And Davis never really forgave her for this. In a 1987 interview, Davis said... She took him from me. She did it coldly, deliberately, and with complete ruthlessness. During the 1940s, both actresses were engaged by Warner Brothers, and apparently Crawford wanted to get the feud behind them. She requested a dressing room next to Davies and started sending her flowers and gifts, and each one was refused by Davies. She didn't want to make good. 
Warner actually wanted these two high-profile actresses together in a movie to have like this big star impact. And there was this movie called Caged about women in prison, which Crawford was already like lined up for. But Betty Davis declined it, calling it a dyke movie, which also led to the assumption that Crawford might have some erotic interest in Betty Davis. And Crawford actually is quoted saying to friend Cherry Asher, Franchot isn't interested in Betty, but I wouldn't mind giving her a poke if I was in the right mood. But this is also to be taken with a grain of salt. You will find many online articles about Crawford being a bisexual, but there are actually no proofs. The first time this, like her inclination towards women, was mentioned in Mummy Dearest in the book by her daughter, with a line added by the publisher not by Christina Crawford herself, and with unchecked sources and unnamed sources. And all biographies following in 1978 just built their case on that very book and that very line that is not by Christina herself. There are other sources claimed which are more than weak and as she so frequently used her body to seduce the man in her life and did so publicly, one has to doubt the sincerity of the claim that Crawford was a bisexual and therefore doubt her crush on Davis. I don't say it's not true. I just, you know, have my doubts about it. In 1952, a longtime friend of Jim Crawford called Catherine Albert wrote a drama after falling out with the actress. And that play actually was about Crawford. And it did very little to hide the character and to hide that it was about Crawford. And it painted a very unflattering picture of her. And so it didn't take much to convince Betty Davis to play Crawford, to play her nemesis. And she did so fantastically. And just like Crawford, Betty Davis in 1962 needed like a huge success because she also was like getting older. Her star also started to fade, although she was an accomplished actress at the same height of accomplishment and success at Crawford. Whatever happened to Baby Chain happened. And it actually was Crawford that convinced Betty Davis to sign on to the movie. And the set of that very movie was also the main stage for their feud. Davis, for example, got a Coca-Cola dispenser installed in her dressing room to spite Crawford, who was on the board of directors of Pepsi during that time. At another time, Jane, aka Davis, has to hit Planche, aka Crawford, really hard in the hat. And Crawford didn't trust Davis and required a body duel. But a close-up scene demanded the real Crawford to film the scene. And Davis apparently struck her so hard that she needed stitches. Crawford, on the other hand, retaliated by making herself really heavy when the character of Davis needed to drag her through a room. Some claim she even wore a weightlifter's belt or stones to make herself heavier and sabotaging the scene to have it filmed multiple times. Davis at that time was suffering from severe backache, so by the end of the filming, she was screaming from pains. And eventually, filming was wrapped. It was a huge success, and Davis got an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. Crawford didn't. But Crawford did take the stage nevertheless, because Crawford had phoned all the other nominees asking whether she could collect the award if they were not able to attend. And incidentally, Anne Bancroft actually won, but 
couldn't accept. So Joan Crawford marched on stage and got the golden statue right in front of Betty Davis. And she posed in all the photographs. So just to make Betty Davis feel even worse. And upon the death of Crawford, Davis is quoted saying, you should never say bad things about the dead. You should only say good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. But there's actually no source attached to it. And it is questionable whether this is truly from Betty Davis or if the feud has taken someone's imagination too far. But it still is a good one-liner. To be fair, Betty Davis jumped onto Crawford's defense when Christina Crawford published Mummy Dearest, saying, I was not Miss Crawford's biggest fan. But, wisecracks to the contrary, I did and still do respect her talent. What she did not deserve was that detestable book written by her daughter. Incidentally, Betty Davis' daughter penned a similar book a mere seven years later in 1985 in which Davis is described as a selfish and abusive alcoholic. So these two had some things in common. And another thing that we have to talk about when talking about Joan Crawford is fashion. When it comes to fashion, you cannot overlook Joan Crawford's influence on the 1930s silhouettes and fashions. She collaborated closely with costume designer Gilbert Adrian at MGM, who emphasized her trademark shoulders instead of concealing them. And her white ruffled dress in Letty Linden, which had to be taken out of cinemas by MGM because of plagiarism shortly after its release, that dress was copied widely. About 50,000 knockoffs were sold. And also the slim silhouette of the 1930s era with broad shoulders and shoulder pads and a rather thin pelvis became the beauty standard of the era. And this is due to Joan Crawford's influence. And Joan Crawford was very invested in her costumes and she really collaborated with Adrian on her style. Because as film historian Molly Haskell points out, Crawford came of age when being a star... So developing a star persona, connecting with audiences, was a full-time business. She was never not perfect to the public. So Crawford really tried to be the persona on and off screen. And she also was a shoe fanatic. Her collection boasted more than 500 pairs, which were captured in several publicity shots. And she was like a brand ambassador or photographed for the advertisements of two shoe brands. It was Arch Preserver in 1928 and A.S. Beck in 1934. Joan Crawford died in 1977, so one year before Mummy Dearest, when she had a heart attack at the age of 69. So this is the life of a very interesting and glamorous and just all around old Hollywood actress that I did learn a lot about when I researched her. And I still find her even more fascinating than before. So I hope I have intrigued you a little bit. I certainly have a print of one of her famous dresses up my wall. You can check it out in my store. I have it also linked in the show notes. And if you love this episode, leave a kind review. It helps me a lot. So... I really appreciate you listening. I hope you're having a wonderful week and I will talk to you next week. Bye.